Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC, this is Money Talking. I'm Charlie Herman. This week, WNYC, together with ProPublica, launched a new podcast, Trump, Inc. Its goal is to investigate the many, many questions about the relationship between President Trump and his family business. In each episode, the reporters and editors, myself included, are planning to explore the deals that are happening, who's financing them, and if the decisions the president is making are in the interest of the country or his companies. We're calling it an open investigation. And what we mean by that is we'll tell you what we know and what we don't. We'll talk to other journalists who have been reporting on this subject. And just as important, we're asking you to help us untangle the mysteries of the president's business. You can reach us at trumpincpodcast.org. In the meantime, here's the first episode. Last month, a sharp-eyed observer sent us a segment from Indian TV. The fourth Trump Tower arrived in Delhi NCR with a big bang, selling 20 apartments on the very first day out of 250-plus on offer. This aired on CNBC TV 18, India. It's an affiliate of CNBC, but the channel is a little different there. It can sound more like an infomercial than hard news. Under the brand license from the Trump Organization, led by Donald Jr. Trump, son of the U.S. president. The segment sounded almost indistinguishable from the way that Donald Trump, host of The Apprentice, used to announce his building projects on the reality TV show, right down to the music. Horns, cymbal clashes, a frantic string section. Competitive pricing of 5 to 10 crore for sizes between 3,500 to 6,000 square feet has definitely set the cat amongst the pigeons loose. And then the cherry on top. First 100 buyers of Trump Tower get to fly to New York to be hosted by Trump Jr. himself. It's a blur of family and business and the White House. Buy a condo in Trump Towers, India. Fly to New York to meet the president's son. Just two months before that announcement, another Trump, in her official capacity, took her own flight. This time to India. May we now request Ms. Ivanka Trump, advisor to the president of the United States of America, to kindly address the gathering. She was in Hyderabad, speaking at the Global Economic Summit. The Indian Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, has thrown a big party for his guest of honor. He's cleaned up the streets, removed the homeless, has had a five-course meal prepared for Ivanka. And then, the day of the summit, there's an elaborately staged show with dancing and music. Hello, everyone. Thank you for all being here and for the incredibly warm welcome. Thank you, Prime Minister Modi, for joining us here today. And that for all that you are doing to build We don't know if all the Indian TV coverage of Ivanka's trip somehow influenced her brother's condo sales. We don't know exactly who's buying those condos or if any of those buyers want to influence the U.S. president. Or how much profit the president's company is making from those deals. Or if Ivanka Trump's own brand somehow benefited from her India trip. A Trump Organization lawyer says everything's on the up and up. But one year into Trump's presidency, a lot about his ongoing business remains a mystery. Hello and welcome to Trump, Inc., a podcast from ProPublica and WNYC. I'm Andrea Bernstein from WNYC. And I am Eric Umansky from ProPublica. Hey, I'm Ilya Meritz from WNYC. Today on Trump, Inc., we're going to trace the story of how we got to this moment when the president is running the country 
and making a profit from his family business at the same time, when we don't know whether he's acting on behalf of his country or his company. Those videos about the Trumps in India, they're just one sign that the distance between the White House and the Trump Organization is vanishingly small. We have been trying to figure out this relationship for over a year. And it is really hard because the Trump Organization is a private company. So that means we don't have their full financials, we don't know who all their business partners are, and we don't have the president's tax returns. And on top of that, the administration has refused to cooperate when we've tried to get basic information. So that's why we're trying something different here. We're going to do an open investigation where we're starting with questions, not answers. And the idea is that everybody working together, and by everybody, I mean us, our colleagues in uh, other organizations in the journalism world, and you, our listeners, wherever you may be, can join together to peel back the mysteries of these fundamentally important questions about Trump's family businesses. I'll be back later in this episode. For right now, I'm turning it over to Andrea and Ilya. It's January 11th, 2017, just nine days before Trump's inauguration. The president-elect's first press conference. All through the transition, there's been a looming unanswered question. How will Trump handle all the potential conflicts posed by his multinational business? By the day of the press conference, there's actually a good deal of suspense. No one knows what he's going to do. Good morning. Thank you for being here. We are now So Trump walks into a jam-packed room in Trump Tower. Black suit, white shirt, red tie, American flag pin. Thank you very much. It's very familiar territory, news conferences, because... He's joined by his three oldest children, Ivanka, Eric, and Don Jr., and a tax lawyer he's hired to review his business. And with that, I'm going to bring up Sherry Dillon. Black hair worn loose over her shoulders, black dress, v-neck top. And she's going to go, these papers are just some of the many documents that I've signed. Next to the podium, there's a table with stacks and stacks of manila folders filled with sheaves of white papers fastened by butterfly clips. It's all meant to give an air that something serious and sober is happening. But things get weird. The night before the press conference, these two huge stories appear. One of them from CNN suggests there was collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. So there are a lot of exchanges like this. And will you undo what President Obama did to punish the Russians for this or will you keep it in place? If Putin likes Donald Trump, I consider that an asset, not a liability. The other story published the night before was even stranger. BuzzFeed had posted what's become known as the dossier, and we're still talking about it today. It is raw private intelligence notes about the alleged Russia collusion, but it also describes Trump attending, and there's no other way to say this, sorry, a piss party for prostitutes in a Moscow hotel in a room where President Obama once slept. Impossible, Trump says. I'm also very much of a germaphobe, by the way. (laughs) Believe me. But mostly, it sounds like this. I'm not going to give you a question. You You are fake news. People around the world are watching this spectacle live. Journalists, good government types, citizens. Many of them have serious questions, like this man. This is Walter Schaub. I was the director of the U.S. Office of Government Ethics. Except for two years when he worked in private practice, Schaub had spent his whole adult life as a federal employee. He worked for the Office of Government Ethics under Presidents Bush and Obama. And on the day of the press conference, President-elect Trump. 
Speaking to us from Washington, Schaub describes himself as the guy who is so squeaky clean, so persnickety, no one really wants him around. You know, nobody likes when the ethics guy shows up at a party. Schaub's sworn duty is to ensure that top federal employees, like the president and the cabinet, don't have money and business conflicts that would get in the way of their public service. For the last five months, he's been in constant contact with both the Clinton and Trump campaigns. When Trump wins, Schaub sends a congratulations email. He expects to get to work right away. But after that, they disappear. And we lost contact with the transition team for roughly three weeks. It was it was a very unnerving experience. Turns out Trump had fired his whole transition team. Then the new team took binders of carefully vetted personnel information that the first team had prepared, and they tossed those binders in the trash. So by the day the president-elect holds his first press conference, Schaub is really nervous. He's come to the conclusion that the only way the president can honorably acquit himself is to fully divest, to give up ownership of his company and set up a blind trust. That would mean Trump wouldn't know where his assets were invested, so he could make presidential decisions without thinking about how it would affect his personal bottom line. Then Schaub sees the stack of folders at the press conference, and his heart sinks. I think it was immediately obvious to anybody who's ever had a folder in their life that the lack of labels or the lack of dog ears or weather-beating quality to the, the papers means that this was not a stack of files that had been in use. These papers are just some of the many documents that I've signed turning over complete and total control to my sons. I just remember watching with dismay as the worst of my fears were coming to pass. But as a president, I could run the Trump organization, great, great company, and I could run the company, I, the country. I do a very good job, but I don't want to do that. Schaub's read on the new president, these words are meaningless. Good morning. It's my honor and privilege to be here today. Because as Trump's lawyer Sherry Dillon makes clear, Trump will not divest. He will not give up his company. He will not set up a blind trust. Instead, she says Trump will give up the day-to-day management. She says he'll do this before he's sworn in. Prior to January 20th. But every modern president has put their assets in a blind trust, which means they don't know what their money's doing. Trump's is not a blind trust. It's not a trust held by a neutral party. To his sons, Don and Eric. It's controlled by two people as close to Trump as anyone, his kids. And he will only know of a deal if he reads it in the paper or sees it on TV. Dylan says there will be no new foreign deals, that Trump won't talk to his kids about the business, and that there will be no cross-promotion between the White House and the Trump Organization. All of these actions, complete relinquishment of management, no foreign deals, ethics advisor approval of deals, sharply limited information rights, will sever President-elect Trump's presidency from the Trump Organization. All of this is supposed to create an impenetrable barrier between Trump and his company. A big, beautiful wall. But even as Dylan is saying these things, Trump, as he does, muddies the waters. He says he could make a deal in Russia. We could make deals in Russia very easily if we wanted to. I just don't want to because I think that would be a conflict. Then, right away, he talks about a $2 billion deal with Dubai that he just turned down. I didn't have to turn it down because, as you know, I have a no-conflict situation because I'm president. If you're saying, wait, what? Yes, he did just say both things. Doing business in a foreign country is a conflict, and it isn't a conflict. 
And I just thought, you know, the entire ethics program was now in jeopardy and I had to do something. Persnickety, cautious Walt Schaub is overcome with emotion. He's ready to do something drastic. This was the scariest thing I'd had to do in my career. And I checked my conscience one more time to ask, do I really have to do this? And came to the conclusion that I do. Thank you. Thanks Thanks. for being here. There's a glass of water for you under the podium. Okay. Schaub's riskiest ever career move is giving a speech at a think tank, the Brookings Institution. Schaub is wearing a dark suit, a wide-striped tie. He frequently looks up from his notes and at his audience. I think Politico called this a half-blind trust, but it's not even halfway blind. The only thing it has in common with a blind trust is the label, trust. His sons are still running the business, and of course he knows what he owns. Schaub expected to be fired for this. In the end, he stayed on till the summer when he took another job. But the day of the president's ethics press conference, he realized something. Those stacks of mysterious folders were a sign that the old rules no longer applied. It had never been done before, but the new president was going to try to run the country and make a profit from his family business at the same time. And there would be no way for the public to know if his decisions were made to benefit his country or his bottom line. Meanwhile, in their large conference room in Lower Manhattan, our colleagues from ProPublica are watching the news conference, too. On one wall, there's a TV. The opposite wall is windows. And weirdly, beyond the windows, there's a Trump hotel, the Trump Soho. Something dawns on the ProPublicans in that room. Eric Umansky is one of them. When the president is talking about conflicts of interest, he says there are no conflicts of interest for a president. And you think about that for a second. And what he is really saying is because he is the president, there can be no conflicts of interest, which to just break it down one step further means there is no accountability for the president or he doesn't have to follow any rules there. And that is a theme that has clearly followed throughout the whole presidency. ProPublica decides to ask, okay, the president is not going to divest, but are the Trumps going to do the things that their lawyer says they're going to do? So we understood quite clearly that ethics experts were saying that what the president has committed to doing is completely inadequate. But then you still have a question. Is he going to follow through on the things that, while completely inadequate, he has pledged to do? So we decided to check it out. They start with the Trump Organization filings. Trump has a private company, but he still has to file documents in the states where he does business to officially turn over the management to his sons. So we start calling up state authorities in Florida and Delaware and a few other states. So we're literally on the phone asking, has Trump filed the paperwork that he said he's going to file? And the answer was no. Then we call again the next day, and the answer was no. And no, and no. For the nine days that pass between the press conference and the inauguration, reporters at ProPublica keep checking. They decide to wait until Inauguration Day. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. Noon, right after Trump is sworn in and is actually president, ProPublica reporters make another round of calls. And as soon as he puts down the phone and puts his thumb up, We push the button and publish a story saying there is, in fact, no evidence that Trump has transferred management, as he said. And by the way, and this is a key point that we keep reiterating, and that is 
even the thing that ethics experts say would be wholly inadequate, he didn't even do that thing. Congratulations, Mr. President. We asked the White House and the Trump Organization all of our questions about all of this stuff. We did not get a response. Sherry Dillon, the president's lawyer, declined to comment. As the weeks and months pass, Trump does remove his name from the paperwork. ProPublica keeps watching. The president quickly hires a family member, son-in-law Jared Kushner, for a top White House job. Kushner, also a real estate mogul, also doesn't immediately divest. The template has been set. Other norms fall away. And then, despite his lawyer's promise that the office of the presidency won't be used to promote the Trump brand, these things happen. First, there's Mar-a-Lago. On New Year's Day, Trump's private club doubles its membership fee to $200,000. The club had always intended to increase that fee. Then in February, White House counselor to the president Kellyanne Conway slips a few details about Ivanka Trump's clothing line into an interview on Fox and Friends. Go buy Ivanka's stuff is what I would say. I'm going to go get some on myself today. In March, Eric Trump admits to Forbes magazine that he still discusses Trump organization business with his dad. He says they talk about, quote, the bottom line, profitability reports, and stuff like that. Quote, my father and I are very close. I talk to him a lot. We're pretty inseparable. And then Ivanka Trump gets hired to be her dad's advisor. Ivanka also owns a business when she joins the administration. She also doesn't immediately divest. And she also puts her company into a trust. I have no involvement in its management and its oversight and its strategic decision making. But not a blind trust. But the trustees are family members, right? Your brother-in-law and your sister-in-law? They are. In April, ProPublica reports that even though his business is being managed by other people, the president can still withdraw whatever amount of money he wants from his company whenever he wants, without disclosing it. Then it's June, wedding season. A brochure appears at a Trump golf course in New Jersey. It says, if you book your vows there, the president might drop in. And in fact, he does. Matrimony, meet patriotism. He stops by another wedding in August. Everyone having a good time? Also that month, the president gives a press conference after a protester was killed at a neo-Nazi rally in Charlottesville. Very fine people on both sides. After it, the president plugs Trump winery, saying to reporters, does anyone know I own a house in Charlottesville? Does anyone know I own a house in Charlottesville? A reporter asks if it's near the winery. It is the winery. It is the winery. I own actually one of the largest wineries in the United States. It's in Charlottesville. And on a trip to South Korea in November... Assembly Speaker Chung, distinguished members of this assembly, ladies... The president mentions his New Jersey golf course, the one where he drops in on weddings. In fact, and you know what I'm going to say... In a speech to South Korea's national legislature. The women's U.S. Open was held this year at Trump National Golf Club in Bedminster, New Jersey. And it just happened to be won by a great Korean golfer, Sung Hyun Park. We'll be right back. Ilya, Eric, and I are back. 
Remember the thing the president said at that press conference about a no-conflict situation? Because as you know, I have a no-conflict situation because I'm president. A no-conflict situation. The president can't have a conflict, he believes, and he's actually referring to a specific point of law. It's the Ethics Reform Act of 1989. And, you know, it's fascinating because we have been reporting on this for a year, but I just wanted to go and check to make sure I understood this. So in 1989, Congress passes this new law, and they pass this law because as president in charge of the entire government, the president cannot recuse himself from any decisions because that would get in the way of him performing his duties as president. So Congress decides, okay, we'll say we don't want the president to not make any decisions. So we'll put this law into effect that says the president can't have a conflict. But they have written the law in this way so that the president will be free to act in the way that he thinks is best for the country. Right. It's not that the Congress thinks that it's okay for the president to have a conflict. Right. And the upshot here, frankly, like a lot of things in the administration, is the president seems to be saying, I can do what I want. Right, which which takes us to kind of an interesting question, which is, is he potentially breaking a law by continually promoting his businesses while he's in the White House? And also, I mean, I think it's important to say that the law is unsettled. There are all these lawsuits that are working their way through on whether the president is possibly violating the emoluments clause of the Constitution by accepting gifts from foreign governments. That is unsettled. We just don't know. So, okay, so we are not the lawyers who are going to settle that. We are not the prosecutors who are going to bring any cases, uh, which, again, leaves us with the question of what the hell do uh, we hope to do with this uh, all? I have an answer. Can I ask a question and answer it, too? <laughs> yes, by, yes, by all means. <laughs> I think it comes down to a, to a fundamental thing, and here I'm going to invoke uh, somebody I think a number of us know, which is who's Masha Gessen, the uh, Russian-American journalist who's done such terrific work thinking about Trump and about autocracies, frankly. And one thing she says is, what's journalism's role in all of this? It's not necessarily to change things. It is most fundamentally to document what is actually happening. It takes a lot of digging and a lot of work. And that's why we're bringing everybody together to do it together. And I think one of the things that we've learned in the last year is that this is an enormous job understanding the Trump family businesses. And we have worked together. We've worked with other journalists. And we decided that we really need to expand this out so that we can have everyone working together to try to unravel these mysteries. Right. So this is the part where we ask for your help. If the Trump Organization or the White House isn't going to fill in any facts, well, we want you to help fill them in for us or fill them in really with us. It doesn't have to be you with deep, deep insider information. We would not object to that. We would happily take it. We have secure ways to get it. But it could be something as simple as, you know, seeing Trump uh, billboards in a city or remember that video that we played earlier about Trump in uh, India? Well, a friend of ours sent us that. Okay, dear listener, here's what you can do. Have you worked with the Trump's businesses or the Trump family? 
We want to hear about it. Maybe you've seen billboards or brochures for Trump Organization deals. We want pictures. And if you've seen Eric Trump or Donald Trump Jr. out in the world conducting business, we definitely want to know about it. You can send us a picture or call us or message us via Signal or WhatsApp at 347-244-2134. That is encrypted communication. Or you can head on over to trumpincpodcast.org. Because there are so many things that we don't understand and that we want to understand. There is a mystery here, and we are working to unravel it. Next time on Trump, Inc., gambling, money laundering, a $10 million fine. When it comes to Trump, all bets are off. So what made the 2015 fine against the Taj Mahal so bad? Well, you just have to read read the consent agreement. You know, it screams out, uh, gives you all the evidence you need. Subscribe to Trump Inc. wherever you get your podcast, and make sure you give us a review because it really helps. If you have any questions about Trump's businesses, call us at 347-244-2134. We'll try to answer your questions in future episodes. Trump Inc. is produced by Meg Kramer, mixed by Wayne Schulmeister and Bill Moss. The editors are Charlie Herman and Eric Umansky. Terry Paris Jr. is ProPublica's Deputy Editor of Engagement. Jim Schachter is the Vice President for News at WNYC. And Steve Engelberg is the Editor-in-Chief at ProPublica. Thanks also to Derek Kravitz and Al Shaw from ProPublica, Anjali Kamat and Esther Kaplan of the Wayne Barrett Project at the Investigative Fund. We had research assistance from Catherine Sullivan and Micah Hauser. The original score is by Hannes Brown. <laughs>